Hey, everybody. Just to let you know, this podcast may contain some adult or possibly offensive language. No nudity, though. (laughs) Unless you're thinking about naked people. The questions they would ask me when I was doing promo on the first album, why aren't you doing hip-hop? Why aren't you an angry black person? You know, they just didn't understand what I was doing. At what point do you feel like that started to dissipate? Maybe just about now. Yo, 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 everyone, this is Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> and my name is Papito Garcia, a.k.a. Tito Frio Amor. Welcome to What's Good with Stretch and Bobito, your source for untold stories and uncovered truths from movers and shakers from around the world. We're talking art, music, including rock and roll today, film and sports. And everything in between. Now, rock out, people. We have an interview with the one and only Lenny Kravitz. Do we need to even say who he is? I Listen, mean, my mom is in her late 70s and she knows who Lenny Kravitz is. Lenny has been Does a, your mom know who Lenny Kravitz Actually, my mom would not know. Oh. Actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. Shout out to Ava. <laughs> so, Lenny Kravitz actually grew up in Bed-Stuy, not far from where you live and almost exactly where I live right now, which is crazy. Trippy. Lenny has been a fixture in music and culture at large for as long as I can remember. What an incredible career. But we dove a lot deeper I learned a lot about this cat that I didn't know, but he's fascinating. Yeah, well, including the fact that he has rubbed elbows with about with just about every icon that is an icon that you can think of. Even before he was a professional musician. Well, that's because his parents were... They had the hookup. They had the... <laughs> <laughs> softly said. Uh, one of the other people who he has uh, been able to grace the stage with as an adult and a performer is the one and only uh, Aretha Franklin, who's unfortunately no longer with us. And note that this interview was recorded the day before Aretha passed. So we make mention of her health, uh, but we don't make mention of, of her of her passing. So rest in peace, Aretha Franklin. Rest in peace, indeed. Coming up next after the break is Lenny Kravitz. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10- to 15-minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Keep It is a podcast that sits at the intersection of pop culture and politics. The host of Keep It, Ira Madison III, Kara R. Brown, and Louis Vertel bring their insight, humor, and brass to discuss the most buzzed about pop culture moments of the week. Based on the phrase, Keep It, coined by Ira on Twitter, every episode features an acidic yet hilarious segment in which the hosts tell the pop moments ruining the culture the most to keep it. New episodes of Keep It are available every Wednesday. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your pods. Lenny Kravitz, welcome to the show. What's good, B? 
We ask all of I'm, our guests. I'm back in New York, good? man. Yeah. You know, uh, just came back from Europe. Just got here a couple of days ago, and now I'm uh, hanging out with y'all. You know, I, I've read that you're from Brooklyn. Maybe you're from Manhattan. Maybe like what's? I'm from Bed Stuy. That's where I was born, and raised in Bed Stuy. Trubinkowski Osco. Oh wait, whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, wait, whoa, time whoa. out. That's too trippy. <laughs> what? I live on that block. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Where? Well, I don't want to give the address. <laughs> give me that, man. Costco between Troop and Tompkins. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, yes. I do. Three, no. I was at 368 Troop on the corner of Troop and Costco, the house on the corner. My folks at that time, when, after they got married, because my mom grew up in this house too. Oh, and wow. And so, uh, you know, because when my grandfather came from the Bahamas, he came to New York, he worked like five jobs, put a down payment on this house. And then my parents were living on the Upper East Side because my dad had this little apartment on 82nd between 5th and Madison. My mom was a secretary at NBC, at Rockefeller Center. And at night, she did theater. And then my dad was a producer, a Simon editor. He was a you know journalist over there at NBC. So I would sleep at my grandparents. My parents would come home from work, go to Brooklyn, have dinner with me, play with me, hang out and then put me to bed, and then my dad would go do like, because my dad was also like a jazz promoter, so he would do his thing at night, my mom would go do theater at night, and I would stay with my grandparents. Then when I turned five, we swapped it. I moved to the Upper East Side, and then I would go to Brooklyn on the weekends. So that's how it went. I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm, I'm actually gonna come to the block before I leave, because I always go to the block to say, What's up to people? So are there a lot of a lot a of few? Because I mean, Bedside has has clearly no, no, changed. No, no, it's changed big time. Big I don't, it's crazy. I hadn't I hadn't been in years, and I went back a few years ago, and I, I didn't even recognize the place. Were there still a lot of your old old yeah, like, but, homies? Yeah, but, but some sold uh, and got out, mm -hmm. um, obviously because there was a, a demand, and they're getting paid, and sure. they're like mm -hmm. we'll move. And it's a trip. Like, I mean, it's just so different from how so, I grew up there, and changing still rapidly yeah. I yeah. Was, the concept of me living not just in brooklyn right but in bed stuy because you know we're like hip-hop dudes i hate but yeah so so bed stuy i mean dude has I, such I, strong I remember i remember being on the block the first time i saw a guy with two turntables and some homemade like speakers you know made out of plywood they'd make their own speakers yep. on the block and i was like what what are you doing you're like playing records like i <laughs> I, I saw that happen yeah, as, yeah. As, a, as a small child, man. That's crazy. Cool. Yeah. And by the way, my grandfather was the head of the TKT, Troop Kosciuszko Tompkins uh, like Association. Association. Wow. My, my grandfather wow. was a legend in that neighborhood. He raised all the kids that didn't have fathers really? in the neighborhood. And he was known, everybody called him grandpa. His name was Albert Roker. And every, I mean, people would ring the bell, it was grandpa home. Like he was the grandpa to everybody. We would all like, load up in his car and go to the city, go bowling, go to museums, go on like, you know, uh, field trips. He was that guy. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. like, you know, growing up in Manhattan, Right. going to Brooklyn was like a big deal. It was like another world and I'm wondering. And vice versa. Dude. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm wondering growing up I had in Brooklyn. Home, I had people in Brooklyn that had never been to Manhattan. Right. Mm. Never. <laughs> so no, I ain't been there. It's like you can see it. It's right. There. Wait, are you saying now in your fifties? No, no, no. Like... Then, 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 bro. When I was a kid, there were there were kids I knew that had never been to Manhattan. Right. And how about how about music as a kid? When did you catch the bug? 
early Jackson 5 singles. Right. Stop the Love You Save. Were you buying 45? I remember that I was on DeKalb Avenue, bro. Ooh. God, if we could <laughs> go back in time to that record shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was Jackson 5 was the first thing. That, that turned me on. And where I remember that, that song specifically. And, and then my dad took me to the concert. 1971, Madison Square Garden, Jackson 5. First show. And, and that and that set it off. That did it. What was your evolution as a as a kid? Like what were your what was your daily thing as a, as a creative person? Music, acting, cuz I was you know my mom was in theater. She ended up on Broadway. You know, she was in the in the Negro Ensemble Company. Really amazing uh theater group. African-American theater group in New York City. Um, so I was around the theater a lot. And my parents were always going to gigs. So I grew up going to concerts, hanging out in the clubs, going to jazz clubs, going, you know, it was that kind of thing, going to Lincoln Center. Can you remember any specific, let's say, jazz concerts that really stood out? Duke you know? Ellington at the Rainbow Room. I was five years old. It was my birthday. and. Duke Ellington and the orchestra played "Happy Birthday" to me. It was, it was pretty, pretty cool. And I, and I remember being at the sound check and sitting on Duke's lap while he played piano. That is insane, Not bad. bro. Not right. Not bad. Pretty, pretty good Not for bad. five. Yeah. Where do, you, where do you go from there? Exactly. <laughs> then it was like James Brown at the Apollo. When oh he had my his, god! When he had, when, he, when he had the new band with Bootsy mm-hmm. and yeah. Clyde Stubblefield on drums, it's ridiculous! You I, were there. I was there at the Apollo. I was probably about six. So you were on uh, Duke Ellington's lap, right? He's singing <laughs> "Happy Birthday." I know. I know you had encounters with Miles Davis as a mm-hmm. kid. Absolutely. Who, who were some of these other illustrious people that Ella that you were Fitzgerald, with? <laughs> Sarah Vaughan? Wait. Time <laughs> Lionel Hampton. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? 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 As in you perform with them? No, or, no, no. Or not just as a no, kid. no. Hanging out with them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Hanging. Maya Angelou, Nina Simone. My parents were in that. Yeah. In that group. Yeah. As you know. Now, did any of these people ever have conversations with you as a kid that that went you know beyond the superficial? The first guy to really talk to me straight and actually talk to my parents on my behalf. Uh, was Taj Mahal. I think my father was complaining that I wasn't spending enough time on my schoolwork and I was playing the guitar too much. <laughs> and I was I was probably about 12 and Taj told my dad, just leave, 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 the, leave the boy alone. Just leave him alone. He knows what he's doing. Leave him alone. He was like the first musician, professional musician to tell me like, yo, stay focused. Told my dad to lay off me a little bit, which didn't work. But... And then Miles, like like later, like I never talked with Miles about my music until Let Love Rule, actually, because at the end of my Let Love Rule tour, we ended up on a plane together, and he saw me and he he was like Letty, and, <laughs> and called over and I went and sat by him and he told me that he heard the record and he was so proud of me and really liked the record. And then I I invited him to come play on Mama Said album uh, to play a solo, but that was the last time I saw him and he, he died shortly after that. Now, Cicely Tyson yeah. was married to Miles Davis for was, a bit. That's and That was the connection because my mother and Cicely were like sisters. And she was your godmother. Still is. 
Ah, uh, still. Uh, right, is. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still is. Yeah. Uh, does she impart she, any jewels to you? She's a man. She's she's probably like she's a handbook, a handbook she, of jewels. She's <laughs> an alien. She's on like another level. She's otherworldly. I, I don't know what you just say about her. She's strong, beautiful, talented, smart. Knows so much about life and health. I mean, she extended Miles' life by many years by changing his life and getting him. I mean, like she was the one in the, back in the '60s into all the organic and the juicing <laughs> and the this and the, before it was even cute. Right, right, right. People were just like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> right. You know? Not surprised. I mean, I mean, she's ninety three now. And uh, her skin is I'm, I'm, amazing. I'm not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> she's. I, I think. I think. She, I think she. She looked like she's about forty five. Just want to get that phone so, call. Yeah. She. She, <laughs> she looks. I, she looks really. You know. She's. Bless her. Bless her. There's no time. There's no time with with Cicely. She's. Uh, limitless. You know. It's a sad week for for music lovers. Man. The. You know, perhaps. The greatest singer of all time, Aretha yes. Franklin, is in is in poor health, um, and um, but I know you've you've shared moments with her. Mm-hmm. The first time I ever saw her was actually that night at the Jackson Five concert in se- in seventy one at the Garden. She was she, on stage as well. No, she was sitting near us, and I remember her walking in, <laughs> and all the flash bulbs started going. People were like bugging out, and she had like on like this fur thing and a fur hat, and it was just. <laughs> like walked in like the you know the queen that she is. Sure. Aretha Franklin records are really big on my list as as an influence. Huge. The recordings, the songs, obviously her singing and her piano playing. If she never opened her mouth, mm. she would be in my top 3 piano players. I love the way she plays piano. Did you see that footage when she played at the Kennedy Center? Uh, yes. A couple yeah. years uh-huh. ago. Yeah. She 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 mm-hmm. said because Carol, uh, Carol King, was getting inducted into the Kennedy Center mm-hmm. Honors, and Aretha came out and played "Natural Woman" and played the piano and sang it. And I was I hadn't seen her play and sing together in such a long time. Came out with her purse, put her purse down. <laughs> you know, I ain't, I ain't leaving my purse back there. I don't know who's back there, um, <laughs> but she and I got to I got to sing a duet with with uh, Miss Franklin at Madison Square Garden for this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. We, we remained friendly, but I mean, Aretha Franklin, bro, that's that's heavy. She's uh, such a major part of all of our lives and the greatest singer, absolutely, absolutely. So what was that like standing next to her and singing? Ah, it was, at, you know, in it was, Madison Square it's, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it, was, it was like stupid. And rehearsals were really fun. That was the most fun was the rehearsing with her. And Miss Franklin is very funny and always telling jokes and pulling gags. And she's just fun. She's like, you know, your auntie, you know. Um, but uh, it it was an honor to be able to spend some time with her. Um, you know. I know it's probably an impossible question, but um, you got a favorite Aretha? Aretha song? A favorite? Daydreaming and I'm thinking of you. That's that's a really good one. If I had to pick one, like one. Rocksteady, baby. No, I'd have to pick Respect. If it had to be one. And by the way, I listened to Respect this morning. The drum sound is banging. It's bigger and fatter than you think it is. If you listen to it, that snare drum is, is it's like it's John Bonham back there playing playing <laughs> playing playing that drum set. But then I have favorites like 
one of my late later favorites and a song that I play a lot is Angel. Gotta find me an angel. You know that one? Uh, not, it's, we, we got our singing. Baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby. <laughs> angel. Uh-oh. Angel. Hold on. It's one of my favorite tracks. Her sister wrote it. Gotta find me an angel. My mom used to play that when I was a kid. I've never heard that record. Oh, wow. It's, uh... Have you, Stretch? I have not. I turned y'all onto something? <laughs> Damn. <laughs> y'all got all the vinyl on the planet. <laughs> um, Good yeah. thing about vinyl is there's but, it, but it's a late, But, it's a, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a later record. It's not an obvious one. The name of the album, actually, is... Wait, here's the album cover. Hey Now Hey, 1973. But my mom used to play that a lot. And it's just, but it's a beautiful song about, you know, somebody who's just lonely and looking for their partner, looking for that angel, you know, and uh, I play it a lot. It's a beautiful song. You're born in the 60s and I'm, I'm, you know, we're not too far apart. I'm born in 66. Okay. And, um, you know, so I remember uh, the sort of the air of New York at that point, mm. you know, the civil rights movement. Absolutely. The beginnings of the black power movement. Right. Um, you know, being too young to really grasp, you know, what that was about, right. the, the language of it. Right. But, but certainly like, like getting traces of it and, and feeling something like just being curious about it. And I'm wondering like in, in your experiences, cause you're, 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 you're in, in spaces that are high art, mm-hmm. but you're also in spaces that are like, you know the hood as well, right. simultaneously, Absolutely. and you're you're being infused with both of mm-hmm. these essences in a way that I'm wondering. You know, what... I didn't I didn't understand the whole race thing until I was probably in first grade. Like, okay, growing up in Brooklyn, the, the, our neighborhood was predominantly black and, and Puerto Rican, and everybody got everybody was cool. My parents' group, being artists of all kinds. The house was always mixed. It was every race, everybody, every kind of person. And everybody was cool. My dad's white. My mom's black. I, I don't think anything of it. My parents took me to school. And everybody's parents, you know, it's first day of school. So everybody's parents are walking the kids to school. And everybody else's parents matched. <laughs> except mine. Right? And I remember this kid ran, walked up to us in in the hallway. And he goes... Your dad's white, and he pointed his finger like that, and it was like, like I, I didn't understand it. it. Was a he made a big statement? He pointed. It was it was like a thing. It was loud, and um, that's the first time I that I understood something was going on. And then I talked to my mother about it, and she uh, explained, you know, you're this, you're that. You should be proud of both sides of your heritage. One thing that she told me that was really interesting, and this is six years old, I didn't understand it till many, many years later. She said, even though you're half this, half that, society is only going to see you as black. Hmm. That was a very interesting thing to tell a six-year-old. And then years later, I understood what she was, <laughs> what she was talking about. Yeah, But in our circle and in our life, it was it was beautiful. Sure, yeah. sure. But but my parents, even even in... Okay, so my parents got married in 63, right? So I'm born 64. 
I remember them telling me stories, you know, even walking in New York City, which was, you know, the North and liberal compared to the South. And that, you know, people, some people would spit at the feet of my parents, seeing them together. Um, my dad once took my mom to a hotel and the guy told my father, no prostitutes allowed. Oh, my God. You know, it was obviously an issue, you know, to a lot of people. But back in Brooklyn, it, it, it wasn't. Well, Brooklyn was just, I had Jewish grandparents, Russian Jews, that were in Sheepshead Bay. And then I had my African-American and Caribbean grandparents in Bed-Stuy. Um, but within, our, within the neighborhood, everybody was cool. Everybody looked out for each other. There wasn't any kind of beef going on, you know. It was it was cool. You know, I'm, I'm curious about you moved to L.A. Yeah, in I was 11, so I was like 75. And so L.A. has, uh, you know, skateboard scene. They got it was know. it was a complete bug out for me at that time, because <laughs> I'm 11. I'm a New York kid. I'm on the subway. I'm on the bus. I'm independent. Yeah, you know for. Because growing up in New York at that time, like as kids, we were in the street. Right. I mean, yeah. I left the house in the morning. I didn't come home till right. the evening. Yeah. You know, it was that way. And and, and no and, no uh, satellite parent. Around. No. <laughs> so like... I get to we get to L.A. and we didn't have an apartment yet because my mom was like she wasn't sure that this show the Jeffersons was going to last. She was like <laughs> she's like because because she went out there to, she went out there to do a pilot right, right. and she's like she said um. You know, there's this show because Norman Lear had seen her on Broadway, and he he said there's going to be this show that I'm going to spin off from All in the Family, so come out and audition. She went out to L.A. She auditioned. Um, she got the role, but Norman. Well, it was funny the story because Norman Lear said, "Now listen, I'm I'm I, you got the part. I want you to play this woman, but what I didn't tell you was the husband that." The guys that's gonna be your husband on the show, he's he's white, and I don't know if you're gonna are are you are you comfortable with that? Because you're gonna have to like, you know, kiss him and hug him and be, you know it's your husband. So my mom reached in her wallet, pulled out a picture of my dad, and said, "That's my husband." Bong. He's like, "You got the part." So <laughs> we went out to L.A. and she thought maybe that you know maybe it'll last a season. Who knows? You know. So we lived with my godmother in Santa Monica. So this is 75. I remember the first day waking up after we got there in the morning, I look out the window, there's nobody, no people, um, just cars, nobody's walking, where's everybody? Quickly started learning about all this skateboard and surf culture. I started skateboarding for the first time listening to a lot of rock and roll music. Because in New York I was listening, to, I was like WBLS. I wasn't that hip to Hendrix and Zeppelin and The Who and Cream and you know, all this stuff, but all the kids I was hanging out with in LA, in Santa Monica, their parents were hippies. A lot of weed and a lot of rock records <laughs> and skateboards and the beach, and it was a whole new lifestyle. I'd come back to New York, summers, I'd get to come hang with my grandmother. And then it was hip hop, and I was like, what's this? Like, because I remember showing up one summer and my boy played me the first. The bridge is over. The bridge is over. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was like break dancing and showing. I was like, what? Well, I missed all that. I had my skateboard. Nobody had a skateboard. Nobody was skateboarding. So 
it was this back and forth thing. And then I'd go back to L.A. with Bookie Down Productions and all this and that. And then they'd be like, what is this? Like, <laughs> I, I know growing up in New York City, I was I was really patriotic. That pride in being a New Yorker. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if like the, the day you found out you're moving to L.A. Oh, it was like, been... I, I, I showed up in L.A. I was like, yo, I'm from New York. Yo, <laughs> I don't play that, you know? And they'd make fun of me because I, I, I had an accent. Yeah. They called me, say they they show me like a piece of fruit. It's like a piece of fruit, right? Like, say say that. What is that? Orange. They're like ah, because to them it was an or it was an orange. What's this? What do you call this? What's this? Hot dog. Ah, they're really laughing. What's this? Water. You know. Water. Yeah. <laughs> they would make they'd make fun of me. You know. Yeah. And then somehow my accent just got kind of neutral. You know. Your mother, she's right. from the Bahamas, yeah, and and I think you have you have a a, a sense of of having roots in the Bahamas. I, that's and, like my heart. I right, mean, I, I live I live between there and Paris, but that's my that's my heart, the Bahamas. Yeah. And so so, what does living there mean mean to you? It's uh, I live in a small town with about five hundred people. We all know each other. We all look out for each other. It's it's really basic, and I it's it's I love it. It's my favorite place to be. Because I'm just a local. They don't care about what I do or what my life is over here once I leave the island. They they just, I'm a local. That's it. It's a place where I can really be myself and just chill. And I have my studio there. I, I make I make my music there. And it, it enables me to stay there for long periods of time. You know, when I'm making an album, I might stay there for six, seven, eight months straight. And I really fall deep into the bush. My first spot for 15 years is an Airstream trailer. So I live in a trailer, which is really great because it's 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 really small you can only put what you really 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 need in there so you got your couple clothes your whatever book thing or this or your whatever stuff you got it's you got to keep it real lean and it's a great way to live you know it's a great way to live and then i built a little wooden little room you know a little shack I'm curious in in that type of tranquil environment, mm. uh, your current work, mm. raise vibrations, where you're being uh, you're reactionary to mm. some of the uh, current politics and current uh, ongoings in the world, mm. and in a space like that, how do you get angst or energy or reactionary energy to sort of say I'm going to combat this with mm. my sound and my lyrics and my music? Right. Uh, as as, a, as an attempt towards some level of healing or some touch just of- in my head like the location doesn't have anything to do the location is a beautiful place to work and a great place to stay focused but whatever I want to do it's inside of me so if it's going to be mellow or it's going to be heavy or it's going to be funky or more rock or whatever it may be that's just within me so one thing that, that I found remarkable when you first came out in the mm-hmm. late 80s was mm-hmm. that there was you know, synth pop. Yes. There was hip hop, mm-hmm. you know, which was heavy on the drum. Absolutely. But it was sampled. Mm-hmm. So your sound kind of came apart from it, huh. but also a result of it. Yeah. I mean, I went, I definitely went a different, I went in a different direction on purpose. I saw where everybody was going and I wanted to make the records that I grew up on. Yeah. Stevie Wonder records, Beatles records, whatever, Al Green records, Curtis Mayfield records, whatever it may be. The technology was moving forward. Everybody's going for this 80s sound and all the big gated reverbs and all the digital stuff and blah, blah. And 
I wanted it to sound really intimate, like those records that you know I grew up on. Intervisions was a uh, by Stevie Wonder for all yeah, I don't know. was a big uh, example for me as far as sound goes. I want and so uh, I knew this engineer that was into that. So we worked together. Uh, his name was Henry Hirsch, and he had a studio over in Jersey in Hoboken called Waterfront at the time, and it was like thirty-five bucks an hour. We got into it, and I knew I was going away from what was happening. I mean, thankfully, you know, <laughs> and it was refreshing, honestly. Like to you know, as everybody a, bugged out. They were like, "What? What are those effects?" It's like, <laughs> "There's no effects." That's what. What's that on your on your vocals? It's, it's, it's just a microphone. There's no no reverb even on this track. You know, this is for your first album. Let Love Rule. Yeah, yeah. Really? So, what was the music like that got you signed? That I ah. made Let Love Rule on my own, then took it around. Ah, okay. And people didn't understand it, you know, at all. And then I had one meeting at Virgin Records. I remember I was out in L.A. at that time, and I was given five minutes to play some music so I put in a cassette of uh, Let Love Rule it was actually that song I played really? it and I'm sitting there you know I've been turned down by everybody and uh, she said wait just a minute and she went and got another guy the guy was, was uh, Jeff Aroff who was the president uh, of the label and then she said play it again and I played it again and said can you play another one so I think it was B the song B and played that. Wait just a minute. They leave us in the room. They go get a third guy who was Jordan Harris, the partner of Jeff Arrow. Play those songs again. So we're playing the songs and they're they got paper and they're writing and they're passing the papers back and forth. And I'm just looking at and this sounds bizarre. At the end of the at, at the end of the th- <laughs> at the end of the three songs they listened to, um, Jeff and Jordan said, Come to our office. And I said, Okay, and went in the office, he goes, we, we want to sign you. Just like that, I was like, "What?" After years of trying to get signed, nobody mm-hmm. getting it, nobody understanding it. It's not black enough. It's not white enough. It's not this enough. The things that they wrote on the paper that I got to see after was John Lennon meets Prince. Oh, get out! <laughs> that's how they expla- that's how they explained it. So, uh, um, and they signed it, and, and they and they actually said, "We have no idea." how to market you. We don't know if you're going to sell. We don't know. We don't have a clue of how to even deal with you yet, but we believe in it. I thought it was really honest. At that time, all the A&R de- departments was like black A&R, pop A&R. Right, right, right. Very distinct, very separated. What they did was they sent me to Europe. They're like, we don't have a clue what to do with you. <laughs> Take your ass to Europe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So they sent me to they sent me to London, they sent me to Paris, they sent me to Amsterdam, and they sent me to Hamburg, Germany, right? So that's where I went, and that's where they started pushing me. They were more open, a little less of the boxes and the formats, and a little right. less. Well, but I mean, I, but, Radio Nova in Paris, dude, that's my favorite station. Oh my god, it's my favorite station on planet Earth. The overnight, they play the overnight, everything. the dude, overnight, right, dude. <laughs> 6 p.m. on? That's on my house 24-7 when I'm home. Just I put Nova on. Yeah. And you'll hear Fela Kuti next to Serge Gainsbourg, next yeah. to yes. some next like... Next to Janis Joplin. Yeah, next to, to some, Blaze, next next to some Senegalese yeah, music. Next, next to Clips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah and, then, and then throw you some like hip-hop. Yeah. Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. For it's, sure. It's so it's tasty, best. right? Yeah. It's it's yummy. It is. <laughs> it is. And, and thank God it's that there's one, there's one station that will still do that. Um, but... 
the questions they would ask me when I was doing promo on the first album, why aren't you doing hip hop? And why aren't you this? And why aren't you an angry black person? And why, <laughs> you know, it, it, they just didn't understand what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here we are. At what point along your journey, working with record labels, touring, mm. making music, mm. interacting with the public, did that kind of sense of, of confusion and people trying to sort of get clarity on their own perceptions mm. by putting you in a box, right. do, do you feel like that started to dissipate? Uh, maybe just about now. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years later from it's, the debut of the it's, album. It's coming. Like they, now, they're, now they're like, okay. Okay. All right, you got it. We'll give it to you. Um, it sounds like you, you enjoy it. I mean, now, even though. even during you know, like my biggest success at the time, like when Five came out, that album, um, with Fly Away and all those tracks, um, we had to really push hard and break down walls and barriers to get like to get on radio and we had to actually change help change radio. It was a, it was a struggle. But then when they would hit, they they wouldn't go away. You know, but then each time I'd release a new album, it was like they didn't know who I like. You know, who are you? <laughs> you know, well we just had this hit, this hit, this hit. don't matter. Yeah, start over from scratch. You know, but uh, it was fun. You know, because I I I was gonna do my thing and that was it. So I never conformed to what was going on 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 the radio. I never chased the fashion of what was happening at that time. I just made whatever came out of me. I didn't really know how to do anything else. You know. Let's uh let's hear a little snippet of the single low of your new LP Raise Vibration. Michelle, can you pop that in? That was the the first track that came for the album. I mean, it just unfolded by itself. This whole album was dreamt. They were dreams. I don't really ever sit down to write. Either I hear something, I'm sitting around, I, I just hear something, or I'm asleep and I wake up from a dream and I'm hearing something. It was really inspired and it just all these things came out that were in my subconscious, in my spirit, whatever you want to call it. When you hear the record, you'll hear it's 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 quite a painting. It's, all, it's a lot of different things going on, different styles. But the so that was that was the first song in the whole sort of body yes. of work that yes. ended up being this album, Raised Vibration. Yes. But I read that Low came to you after a long sort of dry spell. Or... Well, it wasn't a dry spell. I I, I know I get that I gave that interview to Rolling Stone. It kind of said something, and it kind of got a little little misconstrued. But basically, what was going on was that people around me and people that work with me were saying, you know what, you should work with a producer and you should do this and you should collaborate with this guy, you should do this. And the, it's not that I'm against it, but the way I work is just a very organic way and it's just like I do my thing and I play the instruments and I produce it and I write it so I don't really need to be around other folks when I do that. But they were saying, you know, drop your ego. It wasn't, e wasn't even about ego, but... You know, you should drop your ego and you should do this and you should do work with these people and work with that and you gotta be contemporary and all that. Everything against everything that I've ever done or the way I've worked. Because mm -hmm. I've always gone down my path. 
But I said, you know what? I'm going to be open and I'm going to do it. So I worked with some people. It still wasn't the record, the album, the statement that I was going to put out. So I just got real quiet. I don't know how many weeks it was later. I started, I, I started hearing music in my sleep. This was, this was the time that I was being offered whatever it is I was supposed to do. I was then given the direction, which is, again, the way I like to work. I want to receive whatever is mine, you know? We all have our own things that we receive. And that's when it started. And then I did low, and then the floodgates opened, and then the whole album just spilled out. And that was what I was supposed to do. And it, and, it, and I knew it, because it felt, it felt right, and I knew that that was who I was at that moment. So I read that, that you're working on an autobiographical uh, film project, and I, I just recently released a docu- an autobiographical documentary of my life. Oh, I want to watch it. Yeah, titled Rock Rubber 45. You got it? Is yeah, it out? Uh, it's, oh, yeah, it's available. We great. Can, we I want to see that. Yeah. Um, thank you. What, uh, what, what, your boy didn't get one? What's up? Well, I did an a, a autobiographical <laughs> documentary about the two of us as well. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've done two. So, but, um, but interesting to, you know, when you approach an autobiographical documentary is that I had to to tell my narrative but I I couldn't without telling the narrative of my parents of course um of so course. I'm, I'm curious in terms of your approach how much are you going to share that maybe I think it'll be based on but it'll be a different character mm-hmm. you know um it's not going to be exact but it'll be somebody like myself where where are you at with the project is it is it are you like the mu- first draft? The music's the- done, and uh, we're about to get into it with a writer, trying to get it going so I can drop it as the next project. Yeah. Oh, we look forward to that because it's you. just what you share with us today, and you know, as much research and as much as I personally have appreciated your music over the years, I'm, I'm learning so much. Oh, thank you about your paths, and I'm like, it's mind blowing. Thank it's, you. It man. really is. I mean, thank what you. you've been able to experience as mm-hmm. a human being. It's a blessing. This- we all. I mean. All of us, right? The fact that we're sitting here, you're, you know, kids from New York that just l- love music. Yeah. And have been blessed to have a career and be able to support your life off of the thing that you just love that you would have done for free. Your daughter, Zoe. Yeah. Who's a star in her own right she's, at this point. Uh, she's amazing. She's got one foot in acting, mm-hmm. another foot in music. Mm-hmm. What's that relationship like? And was there a conversation where she was like, Dad, this is what I want to do. And you were like... I thought she would end up being completely out of this business, acting or music. I had no idea. And then when she was a teenager, she said she wanted to try... She wanted to try acting. We got her an agent and she ended up getting... Her her very first job was in a movie with Catherine Zeta-Jones called No Reservations, about a chef. And Zoe had one scene, and she did it. And she said, uh, I, I think I like this. Hmm. And then her next job was with Jodie Foster in this movie called The Brave One. Couple of scenes, really good, acting with Jodie Foster. like, And then it just, it, the food and, and then it just kept going. <laughs> it and, gets better. And, 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 it gets better. And, Meryl Streep. And, 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 and now she's acting with Meryl Streep. Yeah, so you know, it's uh, it's all good. She's out in L.A. right now doing Big Little Lies and finishing that up, and couldn't be more proud and pleased. And 
just because she's doing what it is that she loves and she works hard and she's good at it and it's wonderful to watch. I mean, I'm sure there's always, you know, she's learned so much from you just through osmosis. Mm. I'm curious if there's anything that, that you've learned from her. It's tons. She's she's way hipper than I am. I learn from her all the time. I mean, in fact, one of the songs on this album, I recut because she didn't dig the way I did it the first time. So <laughs> she's like, no, that ain't it. It's not right. So I completely changed this, this, this song, It's Enough. I don't know if you heard that one. She didn't tell me to recut it. She just was like, I'm not feeling it. And uh, like that. And then I, of course, couldn't stop thinking about it. I'm like, damn, what is this? <laughs> and then I recut it and understood why it wasn't right. And then I played it for her like way later. She didn't even know. I said, you know that song that I did that you didn't like the way it was? I said, I recut it. Played it for her. She's like, oh, that's much better. <laughs> She's got great ears. She's got great style. She's got great instinct. And she's the new generation. So, you know. Well, I, love I that. listen. Yeah, well, I love that that as a parent, you can listen. Because oh, not, not, every, not every older person is going to be open to critique from a, a, young, a young person. Yeah. Well, you know, my granddad, the one we talked about from Bed-Stuy, he, uh, he lived up into his 90s. And even up until that point, his friends were like, he had friends that were in their 20s and their th- like 30s, for every age. Like he, he, liked, he especially liked to hang out with younger people. He liked to talk and philosophize and get into conversations, deep conversations about things. And he loved to hear where they were coming from and what he could learn from that. Most of the time, an older person says, this is the way you do it, and that's the way it is, and that I don't want to hear it, right? He would say, this is the way I did it, and this is the way it worked for me. When you come up with a better way, show me. And if they did, he'd say, that's a be- that is better. He had the kids respect him the way he did things and what he did as an adult and how he learned. He was very smart, but was always open to, there's a better way, show me. I'd like to learn, yeah. you know? If, if only uh, the entire world could be that. Right? <laughs> Indeed. Right? <laughs> yeah. Let's take a quick break, and we're going to come right back. Just a quick breather. You can have some water. Mm. And uh, there's something special for you. Okay, cool. Uh, some things were meant for each other. Fries and milkshakes, selfies and duck face. And now, what's good with Stretch and Bobito and Spotify? Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to ours, search for What's Good with Stretch and Bobito, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now and now. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, one of your new hosts for On Point. We take on the news with the smartest guests and live calls from every corner of the country. NPR's David Folkenflik hosts the Friday Week in the News. Join David and me for On Point. Oh, the drums. You know what that means. It's time for the impression session. Here's how it works. We play your track, right. you react. Uh-huh. It's as simple as that. Okay, great. Stretch you up first. Ba-boom. A world of beauty for beautiful you. Je suis à vous. Black woman, mother of my earth. Black woman, you gave me birth. You 
can truly see what's in me You can help me be the best that I can be You feed my fire when I'm on the wire Keeping me calm when it's getting higher Sweet like sugar and hot like wine Always keeping you on my mind Giving my life a new light to reach for Giving me so much, how could I ask for more? Keeping us tight when we're getting loose The darker the berry, the sweeter the juice Black woman That's the Jungle Brothers, Black Woman, from their sophomore album. That is so funky, with that clavinet. <laughs> I believe that's a Commodore sample. I mean, that's beautiful. I haven't heard that track in forever. <laughs> so you're up on the Jungle Brothers? Oh, yeah. But I haven't heard that track in forever. My God, that's so good. That's a phenomenal album, it's done so by the forces of nature. Good. But you know what's amazing? It sounds like that could have been made today. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? When music is that good as timeless. It sounds like right now, you know? I mean, I, I what, wish what, artists were doing what, stuff what like that. What happened, Jungle Brothers? They do festivals in, in the summer quite a bit. Yeah. I, I actually did an event with them in Liverpool last summer. Um, I came out with a book on that celebrated New York City 90s uh club flyer artwork from right. the 80s and 90s and I curated an event and they along with Slick Rick wow, um, headed the bill and they, they give a great show and, and uh, I think you know some of their posts done by the Forces of Nature records mm. didn't really live up to the, the level that they they hit in their first two albums mm. but they still have this you know phenomenal body of work which has you know endeared them to fans of all ages mm. you know, up into the present what made you pick that? Well, I, I was curious about uh, you know your your song Black, Black Girl, Girl. Yeah. yeah, and if and if you were familiar with this song before you recorded that. No, no, no. But you know, you always got to pay tribute to the black woman, man. It's powerful. Black women have been the rock for so long in our lives, and they're queens, man, and they're powerful, and so. Uh, you know, I was raised by a group of amazing black women. That was also the beauty of back in the day, like in Brooklyn. Like, if my grandmother was at work or wasn't around, you had Miss So-and-so and Miss So-and-so and Miss So-and-so and Miss So-and-so would tear your ass up <laughs> and take you back home to your grandmother <laughs> and explain what happened. Like, there was, you know, people had jurisdiction, that, you know? It, the, it, the neighborhood raised everybody, you know? It wasn't just your your mom or your grandmother or your, the whole block was watching out. I'm gonna play another song for okay. you. Okay. Everybody sings this one. <laughs> uh, I haven't heard that in forever either. <laughs> I, I, uh, my, my, that's Chuck Berry. Yeah, of course. My dingling. He got away with talking so much mm. madness, but hiding it in these lyrics. Right. You know? <laughs> Which is genius. Yeah. At that time, 
You had to. You know? Yeah. And I feel like like Chuck, you know, it's it's an interesting phenomena with our our deeper predecessors, right? So like, you know, earlier you were talking about Miles mm-hmm. and you didn't even have to say Davis. It's like right. it was understood who right. we were talking about. Right. But as we move forward, uh, I feel like there are certain artists, uh, you know, like like you can't say Chuck. You might be Chuck D. That's true. It could be uh, Chuck Brown from the Soul Searchers. That's true. Uh, Chuck Berry is, you know, he's a giant. He's a giant in, in rock and roll. And I don't know that, that every uh, 20, 25, or 30-year-old has name recognition like that mm, with him. Really? I'm wondering if, if he was an influence to you. Absolutely. I mean, Chuck, Ber- Chuck Berry, man, that's rock and roll. Chuck Berry, uh, uh, Little Richard, Bo Diddley, all these guys, Fats Domino. I mean, we. I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be sitting here. These, these, these are the architects. But Chuck Berry, enormous. Enormous. And... <laughs> There's another reason why. There's another reason why? There's another. Go ahead. A couple years ago, man, you you know, you did a live concert. (laughs) See, man, I didn't didn't, didn't even see. Y'all just. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, the. the, That's funny. Your your private part was exposed on stage. My dignity. Chuck Berry did it very coded. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And, uh, you, you did, did the it. remix. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. That's a good way to end. I mean, there's nowhere else to go after that. <laughs> Lenny, Lenny Kravitz. That was fun, Yo, bro. Thanks, thanks for spending some time with it's us. A pleasure, I really appreciate man. it. Yeah, for real, B, for real. 100%, man. Much Mad respect, love much respect. for everything you've done. Thank you. Uh, you know, my, my wife is a fan of yours. I got homeboys that are fans of yours. Oh, like, cool. Thank you, man. Everybody's going to bug out there. Stretch and I were like building with you in the way we did so thank you for opening up your heart thank you thank you word right. that's our show this podcast was produced by Michelle Lanz edited by Jordana Hochman and Nigeri Eaton and our executive producer is Abby O'Neill if you like the show you can hear more at npr.org and bonus video content on Spotify on Fridays thanks to Spotify for their support Kindly go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. That's how we know you're listening. Or follow us on Instagram at Stretch and Bobito or on Twitter at Stretch and Bob. Peace. Peace.